Hello and welcome to our 18th night rule. I was very pleased for this night rule to be joined again by Trevor from Champagne Sharks. Had a long discussion on literary versus oral traditions, on working from home, on politics and culture. Uh, it was very stimulating and I'm sure you'll all enjoy it very much. For today's intro, we will be listening to Takahashi Yukihiro. The name of this song is Kill That Thermostat. And our outro will be from Koshi Miharu. The name of this song is Ryu Jo no Koibito, which is the first track on her fantastic album, Parallelism. Just a heads up, there were some very, very minor audio issues in the first couple of minutes, but it clears up uh, a few minutes in. Um, also, please feel free to visit us at patreon.com slash nightrule to check out some of our premium episodes and our mixtapes and whatnot. We would uh, love to see you there. So without any further ado, this is Night Rule. I do need to get a camera. I mean, honestly, having like a proper webcam, because like I had one, but I got rid of it because I could never figure out the bloody driver. And to be honest, I've spent my entire life never wanting a webcam because I just like don't like the idea of a camera in my house, just like, you know, staring at me. Yeah. But, um, but at this point, you know, it, it's a necessary thing to have. It's just like if you want to be part of society, it's like having a phone number or like a driver's license if yeah. you're in the suburbs. Yeah. 
especially uh, post pandemic. Uh, one of the problems with it is once you get used to having one, it's uh, it's like everything. Once you get used to having one, like I can remember when I used to say I didn't want a cell phone. Totally. I didn't like the idea of being contacted anytime people want. You know, I hated it. Now, if I leave the house and I step five steps and I realize I don't have my cell phone, I feel naked. I run back. So mm. it's yeah, it's exactly. Just weird how things how things change. Um, I'm sure everyone can tell by uh, your voice, but uh, we are uh, we're very very pleased to uh, welcome T Trevor from Champagne Sharks for our 18th night roll, which I'm sure will be a very special episode. Um, I, I please thank your wife for. Uh, for allowing us to record. I know, I mean, when you were talking, you had a great episode on on working from home and work-life balance and all that stuff uh, last week. And it's funny because we had to delay, well, I was actually a little late, but it gave your wife a chance to use the uh, the blender, which is not compatible with with doing this audio recording. So I'm glad she's yeah. able to squeeze that in. It actually made me think of something though. Like I made oat milk um, for, for, you know, just for the people in, in our house. And I realized how insanely easy it is and how, ridiculously perverse it is to go and buy oat milk that's been shipped thousands of miles and the oh, six dollars for it's 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 just like the, the height of insanity that anyone would ever buy oat milk it's so easy to make it's stunning like it's really shocking um i mean yeah. there's some things that are easy to make but they still require some work so i can still justify buying them like mayonnaise uh mayonnaise sure. is way easier to make than you think but it's still enough work that sometimes just like, oh, I don't really need to do this. But yeah, oat milk is shockingly easy. Yeah, just a heads up, I am hearing some cracking or something. I don't know if, if your mic's hitting your shirt or something, but. Um... Um, the other problem is I have this mic that is pretty good, but it's really sensitive. And I haven't figured out how to put a noise gate on it. So, or actually, wait a minute. Let me make sure I'm even on the mic. Yeah, laptop mic. That's nice. why. That thing um, picks up everything. There you go. Oh, you sound so much better now. Yeah. Yeah. There um, we go. Uh, it's funny because, like, you know, a microphone, is, you, it's kind of like having a, a partner who's like really good, like you say, but also really sensitive. So you just kind of need to be <laughs> be cognizant of that. Um, wow. I'm very impressed you came up with that metaphor on the fly. <laughs> really? It seemed like it seemed like a total like slow pitch. I was like, it was just waiting there for me. Um, yeah. It's but get, to get back to the most important topics facing our society today make your own fucking goddamn oat milk. You know, 70 years ago, Gandhi told people to walk to the sea to make their own salt, to bring down the British Empire. Go spend 90 seconds making your own oat milk. I'll give you the recipe right now and bring down Whole Foods. That's all I'm going to say. You, know, you blend blend the oats for 30 to 45 seconds in one cup of oats, four cups of water, strain it through a cloth twice, you're done. You can add other stuff, but you're done, okay? Free yourself. Free yourself of the $6 oat milk that is just... Uh, an insult to your intelligence and the an insult to anyone's dream of a better society. And the only place it makes sense to buy oat milk, actually it's not even buying it, but if you're at the coffee shop and you uh, and you want to add milk to your coffee, but then that raises the next question, uh, should you buy coffee <laughs> or just make it at home? You know, mm -hmm. especially nowadays in this pandemic when, you know, you're not even just before buying coffee. A lot of it was just uh, I'm paying rent for this workspace. Basically, this is 
this is what I'm paying for the right to work in this coffee shop. But no one's sitting in coffee shops anymore. That was a weird habit I was keeping. I was going to uh, coffee shops every day. And I'm like, wait, why am I doing this? I'm just bringing the coffee back home. Let me just make the coffee at home. Oh, yeah. And like you can also get extremely high quality coffee for nothing. Like I buy, uh, I think it's called Lavazza. It's like the Italian brand. That's a great coffee. You, can, you know, it's freeze. It's uh, it's uh, like packaged really well. It's just like four bucks. Um, I mean, it's an interesting question. Like it's something I think a lot about or something I've been thinking a little bit about lately. Like you've heard of these movements of like minimalism and maximalism. Um, you know, minimalism where you just have, you know, five shirts and two pairs of pants. And it's very like monochromatic and and seems a little rigid, a little, a little, uh, stale, but or maybe not, maybe stale is not the wrong word, but a little monochromatic is I can just leave it at that. But also it like frees up your mind to think of, of other stuff. And then there's the maximalists who want their entire home filled with objects of beauty. And I, I want to marry those two concepts. I want to say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to make my own coffee and my own oat milk, all the essentials. I'm going to, I'm going to have a minimalist attitude, but then I also want art in my house that actually uplifts me in some way. I want, I want to see beautiful things. It's one thing I'm shocked by is the number of incredibly expensive homes that you see that just have nothing of artistic value or merit uh, at all inside of them. And so you just seem, it's like, why would you want to even sit in that room? I always end up thinking, you know? I mean, I read this book. Uh, it was called, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And it's a, it's a personal finance book, even though it has that obnoxious title. It's not like a get rich quick scheme, but even though the guy is, narrative is pretty um obnoxious in some ways um but but it's not as get rich quickie as it sounds it's just basically um um it's kind of a clickbait title but it's more about personal finance and one thing it said that was interesting is it said don't try to just um underspend by you know willpower you know and just try to uh live this uh, super austere life and all that because it's hard to maintain and impractical what he said to do instead was to um, just pick one or two things that you think are worth um, spending on and then just focus on that on on those things like uh, because you're gonna make yourself unhappy and then you'll end up um you know, slipping all the time and then beating yourself up. So for example, to give an example, like there's someone who likes um, living in the city and being close to work and, you know, being close to his social life and, and the lifestyle of like, you know, living in Manhattan or something. So he would tell that guy, you know, just um, be prepared to spend that money. Just, um, you know, say that's what you're going to spend your money on. And then you can be austere with all the stuff that you don't care about, you know? So if you want to live in, live in a city and hang out and go to the bar like two or three times a week, then those are your personal priorities, you know, and you just do that guilt-free. If you just like coats or gaming, then, you know, instead of, you know, cutting spending across the board, um, so, so it's interesting like because it's similar to what to what you're saying like just uh yeah. what you love just be extra with it if you have to and it makes it easy to um you know make it up somewhere else so i've i've been 
it's actually the only piece of advice I really remember from that book, to be honest. Well, to be honest, I, I actually I find, find that really fascinating uh, the way you put that, because I think there's some some interesting complexity uh, embedded in that, because like I think I think that if you compare the the kind of first category of thing you're talking about, where someone's focusing their money on uh, living close to work, living in a city, being part of the city life and the social life, and then someone who's in, just interested in coats or video games. I mean, this is the thing like each one of those things potentially has a kind of uh, a set of social relations and a certain kind of um, integrated, balanced life. I mean, like, say, for example, if you if we take fashion, um, if, you know, if you're from like Milan or Paris and part of your social life and part of your existence and what you enjoy is being able to go out and, and be fashionable and look good. And, and that's what you and your friends do. And that's just like kind of your thing. That's a lot different than just having like 5,000 coats in your closet and spending all your time alone. And then with video games, it's, there's a difference between, you know, only spending money on AAA single player games and not talking to anyone for the rest of your life versus playing, you know, multiplayer games and it being part of your social life. So in a weird way, I think, I think the real advice he was giving was, you know, invest your money and your time or your focus on trying to, putting resources towards trying to live the best life, the most integrated life, the most connected life. But because we live in a world where everything is commodified and everything is uh, pushed through the interface of the marketplace, you kind of need to think of that in, in terms of how you spend your money and what commodities you're putting it towards, you know? Yeah. Well, in his case, um, but this is based on a personality author from what I've seen. I feel like he wouldn't care if it was connected or not. Like that's up to you. If you just want to, um, if you just want to do only fans, if you just want to do only fans and just uh, beat off all day, uh, he doesn't care. He doesn't care if you want to go out and socialize and meet people or if you just want to, you know, stay home and do that. All he cares about is that you pick your one or two things and you uh, spend it on them. So it's kind of weird. Like, for example, he had an example of someone who just likes nice watches. So that's that person's advice. But that's not something that gives any connection to anything. So I well, like I mean, the, I, I, I would I would argue that it's it's there's a sub that it's there in a subtextual level. Like there was a, quite a famous uh, like Chinese official who had like all these ridiculous. He had a huge luxury watch collection worth like millions of dollars, and it was a bit of a scandal. But I mean, even something like that or a luxury car, it's like you buy that, it makes you feel a certain way, and it, it gives you a certain place in relation to those around you. I mean. I'm I'm definitely kind of maybe like pulling pulling the the thread out of the tapestry like a little too fully, but I do think in terms of what people are actually looking for when they're when they're doing these kinds of things and they're trying to focus their attention in a world that may you know inherently forces them not to be not to be able to focus on things. Um, this is my perspective, but yeah, I, I suppose I would differ from from this guy who is probably coming from a whole different culture and like milieu than me. Did I lose you? I was muted. I like oh. your thing. I like your thing better. Uh, <laughs> you know, of, of um, yeah. I, I just think, unfortunately, whether it was um, unintentional or not. I mean, just knowing this guy, the guy, the guy is um, he's he's one of those. Uh, it's hard to explain. He, but basically, I mean, this was a while ago when into that life hack stuff uh and right. if anything it's kind of funny we talk about it in a recent episode but we're gonna go deeper into it but you know the whole 
Tim Ferriss stuff. And I think I found the guy through Tim Ferriss. And it's very hacky. Not hacky as in, oh, that guy is a, that guy is a hack. He has no talent. But hacky as in, like life there's a hacks. bunch of little life hacks. Yeah, yeah. Life hacky. Yeah, yeah that so, movie, that movie, um, Limitless, the four-hour work week. Yeah, I, I listen to that. It's um, it's 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 interesting because it's like a culture of shortcuts. It's it's weird though. Like it's it's hard to know where the um delineation between a, like a real innovation and just like an unnecessary kind of a, like a, a shortcut that has that has negative consequences in the long run lies. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And um. The other, the other thing is too, if you have, if you have um, too many shortcuts, it becomes a long cut. Like like when, when I used to um, buy Tim Ferriss's books, and it was stuff like uh, Four Hour Work Week and Four Hour Body, and the amount of stuff you had to do for that supposed Four Hour Body, you know, is is so many things you have to put that like the amount of shortcuts is like out of control. Uh, all the supplements you have to buy the personal um, health testing and all these different things. So it's, 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 it's a funny thing. It's just, it's just, it's just funny to see uh, how these shortcuts at the end of the day, it's like the person has spent so much time preparing to cheat that, you know, you start thinking like, wouldn't it be easier to just study for the test? It's, it's that kind of thing. Totally. Um, and I think like there's a, it, it kind of, there's a parallel there as well. I think with, um, because you had a really great uh, episode recently where you're talking about kind of like almost this this new monoculture that you see in terms of like design and how like every coffee shop you go to, no matter where it is in the world, you know, if you don't look out the doors, it just feels like you're in Brooklyn, no matter what. Um, and I, I think I think one of the issues that I see is is people are are really lack the skill to differentiate between. Um, something that is that, that is actually effective versus something that's just kind of seems effective or is the style or the, the in fashion at the time like because so much of it is so much of what is in style and what is in fashion at the time is is determined by like such a ridiculously small group and then everyone else is just copying them that like I don't know it's a, like a weird new form of monoculture like when if you, if you think of the term monoculture and how it would um, describe the world, you know, in the fifties or sixties versus now it's like, it, it's a whole, it seems like a whole different beast, but somehow, you know, we're like, <laughs> for example, after I listened to your episode, I noticed there were some duck uh, blue, like, like mugs in my cupboard all of a sudden I was like, well, that's weird. Wait, why were they, they were, you said duck blue, uh, duck egg blue. Is that what it's called? That like light blue. That's everything now. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's always something even like, in food, you know, like um, there was this time where salted caramel was everywhere. Um, it's still around, but there was a time when it was really, totally. really u- ubiquitous, you know, and then things just move like um, the trend moves to something, something else. And now there's like a new flavor. I remember there was like hibiscus everywhere for a second. Lavender was into was in everything. Remember baby, baby and, veg and, from um, the 90s? And yeah, that's not the baby one. Veg. Baby versions of everything. That- that's a deep cut, though. Um, it is. That is a deep cut. And, and that was that was like pre the hipster culture. That was pre hipster culture. But now I feel like what well, I can't call it hipster culture anymore because I feel like well, it's like foodie culture on on the, uh, when it comes to food. Like that's pre like nine eleven, and after that, it's like you know everything has to have like I don't even know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but I forget which episode that was because we've been recording them like um pretty pretty at a pretty fast clip lately to get to get them in the tank and then we've gotten ahead on them so they'll usually be like two to three weeks old and i don't know if you've experienced this because it's still relatively um new for you although 18 is a is a good amount right now uh, but do you yeah, have six, this thing sexy number episode 18 happen- i like it yeah tell me me if if you've had this experience yet have you had this experience where um as soon as the episode's over you forget like 90 percent of it are you good at remembering oh no i mean uh not only does that happen to me when i record episodes it just happens to me throughout life i mean that's how podcasters end up telling the same stories a million times like you know especially like someone that churns a bunch of stuff out like joe rogan you've like heard him say some things like 25 35 times you know he talks about ground nesting birds or something for the 50th time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've recorded over 100 episodes of the hockey podcast, Handkerchief Dynasty, for the Oilers fans out there. So, yeah, I definitely, I definitely know what you mean. It's, it's, it's because you're, you're in the conversation and you're just kind of like the state of mind that you're in during the conversation is completely different sometimes than the state of mind uh, afterwards or before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, um, like I always preface things with that, like you know, apologies to people who've heard this a million times. I just know what happens, but also that's just oral oral culture in general. Things tend to repeat, as opposed, to, like like it's hard to do something oral and have it follow the rules of of literature. You know, like um, stories repeat, phrases repeat, etc. Et you know, mm, yeah, it's um. It's what uh, I'm going to, this is also a deep cut from my university days. I had, did have a professor of mine on from like 20 years ago, which was a rush. Um, and she was just like, he was a good student, everybody. And I was like, ah, oh, proud moment. Very cool. Um, but uh, in her class, we were reading uh, this French uh, linguist, semitician Ferdinand de Saussure. And he starts off by, by talking about the fact that spoken language and written language are really two separate, two completely separate things, or at least they have like significant differences and i think yeah it's it's exactly what you're talking about like the rules of a conversation are different than the rules of literature and it's funny because people don't really think of what you say and what you read as as two different worlds that are that are very obviously closely connected but very different um but like a really good writer on that as well and i think it's a little easier than the french than a french structuralist and and linguist because those guys are a hard read for sure is uh walter ong have you ever tried walter ong Oh, I don't think so. Is that A N G or O N G? Oh, uh, O N G. He's okay. a. I think he's a priest, uh, but he's like an academic as well. Uh, and uh, his book is called Orality and Literacy. Mm. And he just breaks down the difference between oral cultures and and literary cultures, um, and how how literacy actually changes how your brain works and how your um, society is structured but what's interesting is that he is called orality and literacy the technology the technologizing of the word and and he has a paper i think or is a book called orality and literacy and performance in the ancient world and he has he has a bunch of books and papers um the paper he has is a good summary if you don't want to read the whole book, but what's interesting about him is that he kind of challenges the idea that um, 
literacy is a unabashed good whereas he's more like takes both as in um literacy might be arguably a net good but there's a lot you lose from um losing orality and not being an oral culture anymore but one of the things he says is that in oral culture because it's not a text you can just keep going back to and rereading uh people reread by repetition like you know you have to hear a phrase over and over again and he uses examples like the iliad and the odyssey it's like even though it's written now it was originally created to be yeah, this, this actually came up on our, our very last episode with uh, Deep Into History. Shout out to Arjun. Yeah, it was an oral tradition for like four or 500 years. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's why when you read it, you're like, oh, why is this written so repetitively? But it was made to be uh, heard. And it's easy to miss something the first time or forget it. So you needed it like drilled into you uh, over and over uh, in the spoken in the spoken text. Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting uh, idea. I mean, I've heard uh, of anthropologists also studying, um, you know, uh, like hunter-gatherer groups that that maintained uh, oral traditions that that stretched far back, and and they found in some cases they could like re- they could recall, you know, like dozens upon dozens and dozens of generations in a family tree, for example. So they actually learn their brains learn to store the information in a really efficient and effective way. Um, which, you know, if you can just open up the phone book or Wikipedia, your brain doesn't need to adapt to that. And, and we just, I mean, it's, it's you know, obviously the, I, I think the, the idea that there's pluses and minuses is, is a much more mature understanding of it as opposed to just saying, okay, when the printing press was invented, everything just automatically got better. I mean, obviously it democratized knowledge and, and was a really, it probably was, was overall a good thing, but um, there's all the you know human beings and and their and our world is comp- is complicated. So any any technological innovation has potential to be a double-edged sword, and often is right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's a Jesuit priest. Uh, yeah, I figured he must be a Jesuit. And also the title was interesting because it, what did he say? The the technolog- technology of the uh, word. Te- technology technologizing of of the word. It's um, interesting because that phrasing the word is is a really significant like the way using saying the word. In a Christian Very religious context, sounding. Yeah. like the because that was in Latin, it's the same thing as like the concept of like logos as well. I think it's the word for there's like that famous the opening of Genesis in the beginning was the word and the word was God in that sentence. Oh, good catch! You know, like logos and the word, it it, it it almost touches on this idea of like a greater rationality underpinning all of existence. I mean, that's my interpretation. I think and, there's, there's and another he's level not- there. And he doesn't use language um, carelessly, so I'm very yeah. sure that was deliberate. It makes a lot of sense, and I'm no. very sure it was it was deliberate. Um, yeah, but there's different compilations of his papers, and it's all pretty good. But um, he he basically his argument was that it changed the whole um, consciousness of of people. And and, the, and what's interesting is he has another book that came before it that i haven't read but it's supposed to um you know everything builds on his previous word and that one was called the presence of the word and that one um makes it even more uh over that there's a kind of religious or spiritual or 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 god undertone to it you know like the presence of the word so i mean that just adds to the idea that he wasn't using it carelessly or 
coincidentally in the subheading of orality and, and literacy that his previous thing was called the presence of the word. Um, when was that? When was that written? When was he writing? Um, orality and literacy was 1982. The presence of the word was 1967. His oh, first, his first book though was, and this is going to make a lot of sense to you. His first book was 1958, and and his graduate mentor. He started writing after his graduate mentor. Um, take a wild, take a wild guess um, as to who his graduate mentor is. Uh, a wild I like, guess. I feel, like, I feel like it's kind. I feel like it's kind of guessable. Based okay, on the so, idea. He's, so he's so he's a Jesuit, William Ong. Um, oh, Walter Ong. Walter Ong, okay, <laughs> different guy. Yeah, uh, Walter but but, it, but I'll give you a hint. It's, not, it's not a it's not a religious uh, figure. Well, this is the thing. I mean, honestly, this is the only. I'm just grasping at straws here. But but when he says the what was the it was the presence of the word was the title, because that yeah. sounds like that sounds like proto Derrida to me a little bit, because he talks about the presence of the present. But I mean, maybe C.S. Lewis. I have I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that that probably would have been my third or fourth guess. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Because Marshall McLuhan, uh, his thing is the medium is the message, as in mm -hmm. the medium, uh, whether it's TV or movies, each of them changes the very nature of the message. Like like the content is not um, isn't the same when it's broadcast via TV than whether it's read through a book, and his. Ong's thing is kind of similar about whether you read it or speak it, that changes um, how it's processed and how it's um, changes the brain, both of the speak of the sender and the receiver of the message. It's uh... sure. Um, it actually makes me think of um, some of my favorite examples of the use of text in cinema. Um, there's two movies in particular that I think do it really well. There's a this fantastic uh, Canadian director, Guy Madden who's from Winnipeg and he's kind of like an art house uh, darling. Um, and I really recommend, I mean, he's got, he's done a bunch of good movies, but uh, he did one a few years ago called The Forbidden Room, which is just this incredibly trippy um, kind of anthology story, but the, but it's kind of done in um, a very, very like 1920s kind of expressionist style. Um, fantastic performances and some really, really funny scenes, but it's also just incredibly like weird and fucked up. Um, and in that movie, there's a lot of, you know, the, the text cards that you would see in like a silent movie out, outlying the um, the action or what's about to happen. Um, and throughout the movie, there's a really fascinating use of text. And then, and, and it really puts the viewer in a completely different headspace when you're bombarded with with a certain amount of text throughout this throughout the kind of cinematic experience that is usually non-textual. Um, and another great example is Shin Godzilla. If you watch the original Japanese version in almost every, like say like every 10 shots, it'll give you a little title card giving you someone's uh, either their government title or if it's a location, it'll name the location. Or if it's like a helicopter or a tank, it'll name what type of helicopter or tank it is. And the whole thing, I mean, I've heard some, some commentators say this and I agree. I think it gives you a very, in that movie, it gives you the, the amount of text and your interaction with the text gives you a, a very strong sense of being in the world and it being a grounded and realistic world, but also you're kind of in this very bureaucratic, over-categorized, over-managed world. And then on top of that, there's this action movie kind of going on. It's, it's really interesting. Um, I haven't seen Shin Godzilla, uh, but it reminds me of the books of Brett Easton Ellis, who um, 
the guy has gone off the rails to a large degree, but there was a time when he was probably like my favorite author. And um, his, his stuff, I, w- I don't know even how it ages. I feel like I might find it um, not as good as I found it if I was to read it now. But at the age I was at and whatever, I just really like his books. But his books have a excruciating amount of detail to the brands of everything. And I don't know if it's evidencing how consumerist he is or if it's a commentary on the consumerism of the world of the characters, because a lot of his books take place in uh, in worlds where the people are very uh, shallow and, and consumerist. But yeah, it ends up working because by meticulously describing the brands, especially if you have any idea of like the connotations of each brand, like what kind of person tends to wear this kind of watch versus the kind of person that um, Whereas this kind of watch or whatever, it ends up informing a lot of the characters, but also contextualizing their or really driving home their their shallowness. So I have no idea if he's being prescriptive, like he is being that way himself and is bleeding through his work or if it's um, just a narrative device uh, to help explain, you know, who different characters are or if it's a critique on consumerism in general and he's making like like a meta point but i mean it just it just reminds me what you said about how sometimes descriptive text um just naming brand like in general the fact that brands and titles um communicate so much shows how bureaucratic and consumerist our world our world is yeah yeah, I think I think it's it, I think it's likely that it's definitely intended as a as a kind of critique or a, or a, a like a satirization. I mean, I think um, you see that in a lot of places. I think you know, if I've read I've read poems where there was this one poem. I wish I could remember the poet. I really liked it. It was literally just the names of the like chain restaurants that he that he would walk down the road and see. You know, it was like Dunkin' Donuts, Chili's. <laughs> just repeat but it was and it, it sounds like it would just be like total shit but it was actually amazing um there's a really it actually I think, sounds I think, like it would be it actually yeah. sounds like it would be amazing <laughs> I, I actually i read that in a class i invited that uh, old professor of mine on but i think he might be too cool or rather too um too in demand um like i it's i think i think one thing that really you know, there's, I, I do think, and again, I'm, I'm drawing back on my, like, studying English lit, like, the, in American literature, I know during, like, uh, the era of, like, Hemingway and, and those kind of modernist writers, like, one of my favorite writers from that time is a guy called John Dos Passos, and his famous work is the, this trilogy called the USA Trilogy, um, which is basically these multi-character dramas, but, but he does a lot of really experimental kind of, and I think modernist is what you would term it, where, um, he'll do different kinds of texts within the novel. So it's a multi-character novel for the most part, but then he'll also do, the, do these kinds of very stylized uh, but grounded mini biographies of famous figures from within the time period. So he does one on like Frank Lloyd Wright or one on um, Howard Hughes or who's the guy from, who's the guy from Citizen Kane? Can't or that Citizen Kane was based on. Oh, that. oh, William Randolph Hearst, I believe it Hearst. is. That's right, Hearst. Um, and, then, and then also, almost at the beginning of like most chapters, he'll do this really crazy montage kind of collage taking news clippings 
from from newspapers of the era, real newspapers as well as real advertisements as well as real songs. And he'll just he'll start off sections by exposing you to basically in text form popular culture of the time, which I always found really fascinating. One of the most interesting parts of the book because um, it was very dreamlike, been, but also you know it, it was it was kind of documentary. And I think it can be interesting to think about the kind of different types of text you might see within a certain work, especially if it kind of has a meta element to it. I don't know how many people are doing that now, but that used to be a thing. <laughs> Um, doing, doing what can you, can you like a kind of experiment? Like, well, I mean, probably Toni Morrison would be a good example of someone who also is like really experimented. Like I've only read beloved, um, and which I read back in school. And like that has, uh, like, I think that probably carries that tradition forward of kind of an experimental, um, willingness to kind of do different types of text within, within kind of the novel form. Um, It's like I, I guess I mean, like uh, like the like the, that kind of experimentation and saying, okay, well, what what is a novel? What other kinds of language and texts and and narrative forms exist outside of a novel? And what can can we bring them into that and mix the two forms? That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, beloved. I remember. I think I was just too young to really appreciate. It's one of those things that I have to um, Me too, revisit. Probably. Yeah. yeah, I feel. I feel like I um, also just didn't have enough of a sense of um, history, you know, but one thing that's interesting about Walter Ong is he talks about how there's only so much you can even do in terms of linear progression in an oral culture because um, it's too much stuff for your brain to hold, you know, like to do true linear progression, you have to kind of keep the old knowledge and keep adding on to it and by committing stuff to paper you kind of um send it outside of your your head you know I, i think you gave an example about that earlier about um this idea of i forgot what you were talking about i think it was you that mentioned something about um clearing your clearing your mind by I'm minimalizing yeah yeah like though like what, what they did with obama where he would they would always pick his clothes and everything for him so like the theory is you know he can only make so, so many decisions in a day yeah 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 exactly um that process is called uh externalization um where where basically by externalizing uh something you clear up uh, internal resources you know so for example We have like a million examples of externalization um, throughout our day. And we also have tools that uh, we use to um, externalize. So for example, if you use a calculator, instead of instead of uh, writing by pencil and paper, um, you clear up a lot of mental resources. But the pencil and paper itself is a form of external externalization, because if you had to do in your head without pen and paper and abstract uh, symbols representing the numbers, if you had to do all your calculations in your head all the time, it would uh, be a nightmare and stuff. And that's generally what he says about literacy in, in general. It allows for um, internal, uh, sorry, it allows for a lot of innovation and linear progression just by virtue of 
the amount of externalization that it um, allows. You can externalize like hours, days, weeks of thought into onto paper. And now it's on this paper forever. You don't have to hold this in your head anymore. And you can actually manipulate the text more, build on it more, do all this stuff. So one thing he says is that um, it, it forms societies very based on linear progression all the time and constantly um, pushing forward where um, oral cultures very much believe in how cyclical life is and whatever. So you kind of even see it in different philosophies, like, you know, people say, oh, these hunter gatherer people, they very much in tune with nature and the cycle of life and, and um, have these profound thoughts. But what on was kind of uh, arguing is a lot of that also comes from just the idea that, um, their worldview and their culture and their beliefs evolves out of the fact that they don't write. So that's a nature of, um, you know, oral cultures. And so even your religion, your spiritual belief system or your cultural values um, get very changed just by introducing, introducing writing. It's all interesting stuff. Cause one thing he says too, is that there's something called secondary orality where it's like, you write now, but so much of your culture was created under um, conditions of oral culture. So you're this weird kind of blend of blend of both where technically you're writing, but you still have the thought process or worldview that comes from oral, oral culture. And then he did stuff with African Americans too, where he's like, you know, because they came out from uh, slavery for hundreds of years where they weren't allowed to write that a lot of black culture now is secondary orality where it's like, there's still a lot of sayings, still a lot of, um, same thing with the white, even white people in the South, even those white people in the South, they have a lot of sayings, have a saying for everything. Mm, all the idioms. Yeah. Yeah. All the idioms, uh, idioms are a big part of oral culture because idioms mm. are like tech are like textbooks. That's how you, uh, teach, teach lessons. Like, like, um, in a literary yeah, they become they become like axiomatic as well yeah 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 so in a literary culture you might have a book uh a how-to book on how to do things but in an oral culture um the textbook is things like there's more than one way to skin a cat like yeah, all the lessons i don't want to go to the dance if i don't get a chance to rub some titty yeah 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 exactly <laughs> i mean i mean if you assemble them all they all form like a worldview or a manual for sure. Um, it is interesting how we're kind of living in a melange of all that now. Like, I wonder how one might apply this to things like social media and even like online conspiracies and, and online kind of cultish behavior. Because like there is this this parasocial element um, online that I feel is probably closer to elements of more oral traditions. Because um, it's not as though, you know, it's not as though people commenting on, on Parler about how they want to storm the capital or whatever. That's pro that's probably more akin to people talking around the the well back in like the Middle Ages or, or ancient times than it is closer to that than it is to you know yeah. to intellectuals writing letters to each other debating ideas. You know, you've been getting some good guests, by the way. I'm very impressed for straight out the gate to get such good guests. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm doing my best to um, 
to diminish the quality so that it's more kind of in line with my expectations of my personal life. Um, so we'll see, we'll see if I can't disappoint you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I feel really lucky. Um, hoping, hoping to have Harvey on again real soon here. Um, no, I'm thinking of bringing on, um, what's his name? Uh, have you ever heard of the book Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition? Oh, Cedric. Um, yeah. I forget his last Cedric name. Robinson. Uh, yeah. And uh, I can't remember his co-author. Oh, wait, no, I guess. Or am I thinking? Wait, wait, does he have a co-author? No, he doesn't. I don't think he does, actually. I might be confused. Yeah. Um, oh, that's the one. I And then Robert, uh, Robin Davis Kelly, Keeley? Uh, I knew you were going to say him. I wanted he, to invite, he, he, I wanted he, to invite he, him he, on. He's the other guy, Robert Robin DG Kelly. DG Kelly Kelly, that's right. I mean, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I, I don't know if a, if a new podcast with like sixty listeners asking him to come on is is much of a draw. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you got you got no Mickey you got no Mickey That's that's not a small cat. That's very cool. magnanimous on her part too. That was that was a really fun time. Um, that's it's, it's definitely interesting. I was talking with another uh, friend who's starting her own podcast, which is going to be amazing when it comes out. Um, about what a rush it is when people say yes to coming on your podcast. And actually that, that uh, kind of transitions into what I wanted to talk about as well, because uh, it came up on a recent episode <laughs> you know what? of Champagne. I, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. I get confused by the structure of your sentence. I thought you were saying the whole premise of the podcast was going to be about what a rush it is when people say yes to your podcast. <laughs> I'm like, That's a very meta concept, but oh, maybe God. it could work. <laughs> and I realized what you were saying. I'm, I'm sorry, it's funny. But, no, but no, yeah, no. I'm sorry, uh, go on. Her, her podcast, I think, is going to be on, like, animal behavior, um, which would be super cool. No, it's uh, it's interesting because, like, I wonder, like, I feel as though it ties into what we were talking about before. Like, say, for example, you know, I, I'm investing my money. In, go ahead. Oh, wait. In case I threw you off your original point, you were going to say something about on an episode of Champagne Sharks. I don't know if this is the same point you're going to make now or if I threw you off the, the original point, but I didn't want to. Um, make you forget what you were going to say the first time. Um, hold on. Let me see if I can remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think so. Um, nope, nope. All good. Uh, okay. okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so you're talking about your friends starting a, starting a podcast and yeah. remind you. Uh, it's, it's like, uh, so if, if I'm spending all my money on coats, you know, and 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 my argument is that, that what I'm actually spending money on is some kind of social relation or some kind of socialization aspect to that. Um, you could even say like a parasocial aspect to it. If, if like you're connect, if, 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 if it's via this commodity that you're, that you're entering that social realm. And I think that like how that, that might tie in as well to even just the whole, the whole nature of, of like podcasting. You were talking about it on Champagne Sharks recently about how people aren't really paying for the content necessarily so much as they're often just paying for kind of a parasocial relationship. Um, yeah. And I know, I know last time we talked about really bleak and depressing stuff. So I wanted to make sure we hit some more of that because we both enjoy it. And it's like, it's like, what, what kind of world are we living in where all these human beings are going around trying to buy things and trying to subscribe to podcasts and whatnot, just because ultimately they're lacking enough of a sense, sense of connection to those around them. Like is, is the greatest like decommodification scheme of all time, just people actually like getting to know people around them without like sans you know a marketplace mm. can you repeat can you repeat the question i want to make sure i understand it is the well, greatest it's, it's like it's like oh. everyone's everyone's so thirsty for I mean, I mean i'm generalizing of course but i think a lot everyone people are so thirsty for some kind of social connection that they end up kind of seeking that 
in, in all kinds of different forms and it's mediated through um, some kind of like exchange, uh, you know, an exchange of money, some kind of commodification, some kind of marketplace, whether it's, you know, anything from, uh, you know, subscribing to a podcast to OnlyFans or, or, you know, spending all your money on golf gear so you can golf a lot. It's like, I wonder, I wonder if the greatest trick of capitalism is like seemingly fulfilling people's needs for this connection to the world because it's it's just not it's it's just not commonplace when it should be ultimately like we should we should, if if we all just like knew I mean, our neighbors and had had a good social group and friends and family and 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 didn't and it wasn't mediated through commodities you know we might not even spend half as much money as we do on, on crap we don't need yeah i would say the biggest trick of capitalism is to ruin those bonds um in the first place and then sell you a pseudo solution. Uh, I mean, I think it's the biggest trick of capitalism in general, uh, even outside of communication, is that it degrades and takes away the original version of something by telling you this is a new and improved uh, progress version of it. And then when you accept the new version of the thing and you realize that um, you lost something by... Um, giving up the original version it then sells you a pseudo version of what you gave up um under the guise of it's even more progress so it's like uh i mean going backwards is never an option which is kind of one of the things that uh ong talks about with the uh, orality versus literacy right. you know like everything is about linear progress so um going backwards how do you really commodify going backwards people are trying it in a bunch of different ways like so when you see stuff like the minimalist movements that you talk about or slow food or paleo or all these different things there's a bunch of little things that come up that all basically try to um say in one way or the other uh, this is a way to reclaim something that mm. that we lost i think community is the same way but the problem is because i think we're so conditioned to um literacy culture and the and the cult of progress and growthism even our ways of going backwards um we can't think of any way except using the technology you know so it's like um, even the paleo people have all these technological hacks and <laughs> websites and um, and books and and apps that you can use and you know all these all these tricks and supplements and uh, scientific papers you know justifying paleo like, like very few people who actually wouldn't just go live someplace and, and make a farm. Mm. Or, or you know but can you even if you, if you wanted to like can you hunt and gather like um a paleo person like like in capitalism like is that even a choice you know I mean, like yeah. yeah it's uh it's it's tricky like because we do i mean i've been thinking a little bit about um, our previous conversation where we talked about kind of um a false uh neutrality or like a, a decontext, like a, a contextualness that um, is kind of like uh, 
under the rubric of, of, of some kind of objectivity. It's very much like, like, like a marketplace or a commodity, right? Because, you know, you put, you, you put commodities on the market and it, it ascribes them a value. And then they all kind of exist in this matrix where they all have a, a, a dollar value, you know? So in a way it's saying, okay, we've taken all this variety, all this complexity, all this chaos, and we've systematized it and we've rationalized it. And now look, we have this lovely, system that has has a sort of neutrality built into it seemingly in that everything exists on this in this matrix and has a value of course someone like marx would argue the the social relationships are are being hidden by this by this process of, of creating this marketplace and i think i think it's extremely hard to step out of it i think you know if you are if you're a paleo person you know you're probably going to need to support yourself by like writing a web book or creating a YouTube channel. Or if you, if you want to hunt and support yourself by hunting, you're probably going to have to work as a guide and, and, uh, you know, take rich CEOs on hunting trips to, to support yourself. Like, like we're, we, we're not going to turn into a bunch of survivalists and just cut ourselves off from society. Like that's, I, I think maybe that's something that people could do on a small scale, but like, come on, are we really gonna, can we really escape the city that way? Oh so yeah. Oh yeah. And but but also like um what can you what can you do as far as like for example to go back to the I mean we expanded it out but to go back to the specific thing of um of connection and all, all this stuff and the marketplace selling us something that maybe we should just go back to but I mean back in the days everybody didn't have um these disconnected office lives you know like like now even if you say okay i want to go back to um the way things were you live in a suburb it's it's different you live in a city it's different there's not this interconnected life there's not this general store i mean it's that whole bowling alone thing i don't know if you ever uh, read or heard of bowling alone i haven't, I haven't heard that one. Oh, okay bowling alone is this book about how uh it's by the guy's name is Putnam, I believe, uh, Robert Putnam. But Bowling Alone is basically about how it's Bowling Alone, the collapse and revival of the American community by Robert Putnam. And it's basically about how um, we used to have things like bowling leagues, you know, and in a bowling league, it was a bunch of people in the town formed a league of bowling and had different teams and you all knew each other. There was a sense of community. And, you know, a lot of people were part of the same church. And then you had church activities or you had um, car washes or bake sales. People's kids played together. But now we have these totally atomized lives. So now when you go bowling, it's not uncommon to uh, just bowl with the people you came with or even more. Um, it's the only that's the only way I've ever gone bowling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Bowling leagues used to be a very common thing. It's funny, Simpsons had Homer in a bowling league in the early seasons and stuff. Pals. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure if he's even still in one. I'm sure I'm sure it's even gradually crept into the Simpsons where uh he probably doesn't I don't know if he still bowls in a bowling league, but that was something from the from the past. But now people will literally go and bowl alone just to work on their game or to just almost like a meditation. Like, you know, I was going to go in and throw the ball a couple of times, clear my head, you know? So it's, uh, that's, that's kind of what he's talking about. Like the idea of bonding networks and stuff. So it's like, mm. 
even if you so say you wanted to um, give up this pseudo connection that the internet and podcasts gives you, like the amount of uphill battle you have to do. Imagine trying to round up a bowling league now, and some people are working twelve hour days. Some people have all this stuff going on um, in an atomized way, binge watching, doing all this stuff. Like capitalism has structurally changed us so much and internally uh, changed us so much that I just think it'd be hard to go back to, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's really, uh, he identified four example four um, trends. Uh, um, four exceptions to that, I guess, go against this trend. And one is an increase in volunteerism among youth the growth in telecommunications, which is kind of what we're talking about. Uh, I mean, you know, it's about four things that go against the atomization of stuff. Um, grassroots activity among evangelical conservatives, like, like these are the, the, the exceptions. Uh, so right. evangelical conservatives still preserve some of that old, um, you know, um, oh, absolutely. And that's got to be one of their main draws, right? Yeah, yeah. And the Gordon Telecommunications, you know, is an exception. But like we said, is it is it a degraded exception? You know, is it a, a lesser version? And it says, and the increase in self-help support. But uh, he says these exceptions do not offset the overall um, trend. Indeed, by virtually every conceivable measure, social capital has eroded steadily and sometimes dramatically over the past two generations. He, um, he calls it, um, social capital that, that, uh, intracommunal, um, um, ties. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I think it might also tie into this concept of like, you touched on that maybe, uh, you can define for me again, really quickly externalization, like, uh, is it safe to say you're talking about a psychological concept where you kind of put something outside of yourself in order to better understand and uh, deal with it in some way, shape, or form before you kind of re-internalize like, it? Re-internalize yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, think, yeah. Think about exactly. what about what about social relations as something externalized in the form of these commodities, for example, by capitalism, as opposed to something externalized by people's own structures or the structures in their community. Like, I think you're right to say it's hard. And I think what makes it hard is we need to be, be rebuilding our own kind of structures. But, yeah. I, I, but it's definitely not impossible because it is, I think there's there's an inherent element in, in, in human beings that, that nudges them in this direction a little bit. Yeah, but I think part of the problem, and this is a problem with externalization in general, is that um, we externalize as a result of, you know, needing the help. I mean, even a conversation is a form of externalization. Like, you know, I might have an idea, but me, you and I talking, um, you know, we're kind of externalizing our thoughts onto each other. And sometimes uh, it, we might help each other um, come to a deeper understanding than if we were sitting in a room by ourselves. Like a problem with externalization, it's not really a problem, but it's just a feature, let's just say a feature, because the problem makes it sound like it's definitely a negative, but um, anything you externalize, whether it's like using Google Maps all the time, like I had this habit of using Google Maps for everything, even places that I knew how to get to, because it would always tell me the traffic. So sometimes even if I know how to get someplace, it's good to know 
when roads are closed, what's happening with the traffic and stuff. But I started realizing I started forgetting directions uh, because I was kind of weakening my internal uh, resources and skills by they're kind of atrophying by always using the Google Maps or same thing with always using a calculator. Uh, if you do it nonstop enough, you will your ability to um, do do the computation by hand or in your head is going to start to atrophy. So I feel like that's it's not impossible, but I think we have the problem of the skills that we would need to reverse it. A lot of us have had it um, atrophied and some of us have never developed it. Picture the people who've grown up never not knowing an internet or yeah. all these the greatest stuff. So I don't think it's impossible, but it's a I, fair think, point. I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's a muscle that people are going to have to build up. I don't think it's going to be as easy as just turning things off and, you know, people will just start talking to each other again, like, like they used to. No, certainly not. I mean, um, I like maybe, maybe, maybe a hopeful thought is that perhaps like there's some kind of like quasi epigenetic, <laughs> like remnant of that knowledge. I mean, I think, I think something like podcasting um, can be, I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, even me just doing this podcast, I'm talking to a wider array of people than I, than I have before. And also talking to people from older generations as well. Um, and it's interesting. Like, I wonder how much um, benefit we could get from actually speaking to like-minded people of, of, other generations. I think that's also something that's probably really been lost and something that would have been much more organically part of, uh, you know, things like oral traditions, for example. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Um, well, well um, that's another thing that literacy kills is literacy kills the concept of the elder. Um, oral places with oral traditions that are basically oral have the concept of the elder very strong, right? And what I mean by that is think about like, even well, like someone, someone had to make sure that the acolytes had memorized stuff properly. Very, yeah. Memorized stuff. Uh, like places where it's like very rusty, even if it's a place with literacy, like one of those old, you no, know, under the Tuscan sun type places or a rustic old Italian village where like, you know, the elders, people have a lot of respect for them. And what one of the reasons for that, in addition to, um, memorizing stuff and having these stories and wisdom is this idea that um, they still have a use because the way that people are cooking now, the way people are farming now, the way people are making shoes now, um, the way everything runs is exactly kind of how it ran a long time ago. So this person now has 50 years of experience making shoes. So the person who has 10 years of experience still has a lot to learn from that person doing 50 years. But in a civilization of constant progress, there's so many new ways to make shoes and new machines that have happened. So the old person just knows an outdated way. There's been like, uh, if you think about all the amount of things that now need a continuing education class. You know what I mean? Think about all the things that are in your continuing education class. Or if you're doing computers, if you don't stay on top of it for like five years, everything is outdated. Or, you know, if you're working at a, at a assembly line or 
or anything, um, if you're out of the game for like five years, you have to be retrained on a new system. They're like, oh, the software has been updated like 10 times since the last time you, you've done this, you know? So now old people don't have anything to um, teach you because progress keeps making old things um, outdated. So uh, they're just, what are you going to hire like an old person for? Uh, no, matter, no matter what the field, everything uh, changes. Even something like writing, you think writing doesn't change, you know? So an old journalist would do well, but now it would be like, wait, how many followers do you have on uh, Twitter? Do you know how to write for the internet and do clickbait? Like, like everything, technology just constantly morphs and changes and makes things obsolete and, and literacy in general in a way that um, oral culture culture doesn't so i think what you're talking about that that loss of the elder is very much a form of the technologizing of the of the word see it's interesting because and i totally agree um but i think one interesting exception to that and this i've been thinking about this since your your work from home uh discussion on sh the recent champagne sharks um is the is how actually in software development for example which is something i have a lot of familiarity with it's like, the, for example, engineers, like software engineers, coders, the, the elder coders are actually like so incredibly vital. And the number of times where I've seen junior coders struggle, struggle, struggle with the problem and then have a senior coder come in, give them like two minutes worth of advice that just completely makes, it clarifies everything. It's really interesting to me. Like, um, I think people have a little bit, they've, they've vilified kind of uh, Silicon Valley and, and technology quite rightfully, obviously. I mean, you know, um, <laughs> there's a lot of nefarious shit going on. Um, but, the, but the actual process of, of coding itself, I feel like is one instance where the elder, you could say certainly in, in this conversation, I would say the elder is actually still of, of, of tremendous value. Um, certainly like the companies that know what they're doing, I would say. But that's, that's an exception to this, this swelling tide that you're talking about. Yeah, um, I would also say maybe too, um business in a very broad sense like you know kind of like being a ceo or something like that uh, i think that's not to um be too complimentary to business but i mean the ceo and stuff doesn't really have to get their hands dirty that much they just have to kind of oversee different things so it's like uh and keep connections with the board and everything so i think that might be something where um the elder might still have a lot of um, um, things things to add, but something I wonder with the coding thing, right? Does it matter if the coder is still active and educating themselves on the new languages and stuff like that, or does that not matter? They still oh, no, are no, able to add. No, definitely matters for sure. Um, but but that kind of, I mean, even, even with coding, for example, I feel like so much of the skills can actually transfer. Like for example, I worked for a guy who was one of the co-creators co co of XML, um, which was, you know, a pretty, pretty like incredible, like widely used uh, like data format um, for the internet. And it was, it's been supplanted by something called JSON. But I mean, the fact that he did all that work, creating that language and understanding it, it you can apply so much of that, so much of those skills, is, but you do have to keep up for sure. Like, yeah, that's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, see, I think 
that's kind of the problem because I think most things, if the person can keep up with the new developments, they can, um, you know, then their experience can come in handy because they knew the new developments, but they also have the experience. But uh, before you didn't have to do that. All you have to do was just refine, like the basic tools of how to make uh, pasta sauce in Sicily were was just the same for a hundred years, you know. So the older you got, like like you mastered it, um, you learned it pretty quickly, and then the rest of your time or even if not quickly, but you learned it by a certain age and the rest of your time was mastering and refining. And, you know, you might innovate and come up with new types of sauces, but the core process was um, the same and you just got better. Whereas now you have to keep learning, learning, learning. And I think at the end of the day, learning is always uh, better for the young. You know, I think it gets harder to learn as you get old, you know, it's just, so, 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 yeah, I mean, I think it definitely an old person does still have to keep keep up in some in some way, in a way that they used to not not have to. You know, they just mm. could just focus on honing what they already knew and 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 refining it. You know, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right. Um, have you ever heard of uh, like the Marxist term, uh, the coercive laws of competition? Uh, no. So it's, it's basically this idea that, that kind of no matter how good you're running your business on your own terms, ultimately, like if, if the factory next door buys a, a better piece of technology for their production line and they're more efficient and they make higher profit, you, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to try and do the same. So mm. it basically is this, is this idea that, that innovations give the innovator a very brief kind of sugar high of advantage. Um, but what actually happens is everyone else ends up adapting to that, whether they want to or not. And I think that's that's definitely kind of like a component that you see in more and more aspects of life, like under high capitalism. I don't know. The pasta sauce metaphor interests me as well, because I think of I can't help but think of the fact that like like, yes, the skills to like refine your pasta sauce and make the best pasta sauce are 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 great to have. And it's wonderful to have that, that ability and time to do it. But at a certain level, you know, you're still, still to get that pasta sauce to market, or you still have to run your, your restaurant. And I think of like all those restaurants where there was the parent that started it, ran it amazingly well, very successful. You know, you see it on, on every other episode of kitchen nightmares. It's like an Italian restaurant in Jersey where, you know, the story is that it was, it was booming in the eighties and nineties. And then the the parents pass on, and the kids take it over, and they just cannot maintain it at all. And I think I think yeah. it has more. It's a lot more than just them still knowing the recipes, or even necessarily trying to refine those recipes. For example, it's like being able to run a kitchen, being able to run a restaurant, being able to create kind of a, a place for yourself in the community is such a multifaceted kind of interdisciplinary approach. That yeah, and so many of the things that is that is intertwined with are constantly evolving. Totally. Um, I don't know. I feel, I feel like people are, are, are so their, their, their focus is so kind of fragmented now that they, that the thinking is, Oh, well, I just need to make the best pasta sauce. And, and then if I make the best pasta sauce, that's, that's as good as the ones that people are doing, but a little better, somehow that's going to be enough when in fact it's like, you know, probably like treating your kitchen staff well and knowing how to do the accounting and, you know, 
knowing how to attract customers off the street is like as important, you know, for being running a restaurant so hard, man, I feel so sorry for restaurateurs yeah. like on, on at a good time. Like I, well, growing up my entire life, I would always feel sorry for a new restaurant that opened that had no customers. It's so funny how, how, yeah. how my sympathies would, would, where my sympathies would lie. But like, even now it's like, God, can't even imagine. I think even that multidisciplinary stuff you uh, describe, you could learn that from elders because that doesn't change. Like how to treat someone decent doesn't change. How to totally. um, give someone a fair wage doesn't change. How to reach out to customers doesn't change. Uh, you could learn that from your parents. You could pass that stuff down. It's technology that changes. And that's what kills everything because um, – you, you might there might be some new machine or some new way of doing things that makes things way cheaper and allows you to use less staff so if everyone else adopts it but you don't like the price of food changes are you still going to be able to charge the same amount um they have these different machines that make things more um more efficient or or because or other things, because of technology, because of the crawl of progress, not only the mechanization of stuff, but now um, immigrants or or um, undocumented immigrants. Now, for example, um, without technology, without progress, and this is not like an anti-immigration thing; it's just a description of how technology changes conditions. You have people who. First off, because they're exploited from technology, they're, where they live now is just uh, colonized, exploited, and poverty-ridden, you know? So now they can't even make money where they're from. That same technology gives them the way to cross an ocean and integrate themselves into a whole different uh, culture across the world. That's only responsible. That's, that's only possible because of technology. Where do they go when they get, when they get to this new world, they go into something called the city, um, which is a recent, the modern industrialized city, you know, post industrial revolution, which factories and all this stuff is its own uh, relatively recent thing made possible because of progress. And now this, undocumented immigrant is going to work in this place or in this restaurant or whatever it's like in addition to the actual leaps of technology the conditions of people that technology creates are different so now you have someone who can work for a quarter of the wage of the um, native-born um, American so even if you take away like the direct implication of technology you might want to do things like your um, parents as far as the relations and everything, you know, like, like, and whatever. But now there's a whole different situation on the ground. And it's like, do I hire a bunch of undocumented um, Mexicans and pay them a sub, a sub living wage, which is morally unethical and uh, has a host of problems. And also, um, hurts like you know the american workers who now feel this pressure on them and, and stuff or do i not do that and you know for the undocumented people now have no job so they're getting hurt that way and i'm going to go out of business because like um this other person can under can charge way less than i can charge like there's so many things that technology 
does in indirect ways that keeps us from continuing the traditions that our our parents did like it'd be great to have everyone able to afford a house from a factory job you know after um 20 years of working you know and, and retire and be fine and put their kids through college but uh, technology just cheapens everything it uh, like capitalism is bad enough but capitalism like powered by uh technological process i mean progress is is even more of a beast um well you know I, like adaptation is not is not necessarily a good or a bad thing you know yeah um and I, it's it's interesting like um to think about how social relations um, in, in different contexts and under different types of technology exists. Like uh, like one metaphor I might use is like, you know, the, the technology of like the, the Roman trireme, you know, a bunch of slaves tied up below with, with giant oars, with a slave master whipping them. Uh, you know, there's, there's the technology of that trireme, but the, that, that there's also a social relationship between all these people that, that it engenders. And then you look at something like the ship of the line from the age of exploration you know you actually you didn't have slaves running propelling the ship it was it was sails and wind wind power so you needed skilled people to be able to run and manage the sails i'm not i don't know anything about <laughs> the navy or whatever yeah but like think think about like what are the social relations engendered at someone someone say at a technology company where everyone's working from home um and and they have that kind of autonomy but also, like, how does that affect this, the 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 context of the home as a place both of living and of work? Now, like, I remember you were talking about how you were kind of you, a part of you craved the idea of this kind of we work, like workspace, and I do think that's that's hopefully something that we end up at. But maybe a version where, you know, within your neighborhood, or run, your, yeah, yeah, your apartment Not building, run. you have a spot you can go to that's separate. You know, you could say you've externalized your workspace and you've yeah. gained the Not benefit run of by a scumbag. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Not run by wannabe VC scumbag. We know it's crazy. We have that now locally in, in Brooklyn. We have all these little co-working whatever spaces where it's like what um, a bodega or or a small um, local go, um, gourmet market is to a giant supermarket chain. These things are to WeWork, like kind of like, storefront community um we works and stuff and they were pretty interesting but i wonder how covid is going to treat them i feel like i wonder if they're, they're staying in business i was just looking at um the website of one and this still seems to be up and i'm wondering how it's even maintaining but but yeah um i think i think i think there is potential for um that stuff to happen but absolutely i mean i think it's i think it's intuitive certainly looking at like a remote work kind of norm in the future like it's completely intuitive that we would have communities built around the idea of you know you have you have a place you go and do your work nearby where you live it's separate from it but nearby and then the sanctity of the home where you know the necessities and the the essential kind of sanctity of human life itself and the reproduction of human life is is maintained but it's not it's not encroached upon by, you know, ha- having to feel like you need to be at your computer, you know, 12 hours a day. Yeah, it's nice to have dedicated spaces to things like, you know, um, and it gets harder and harder to um, have. Um, you know, something um, interesting, right? Uh, a good example, I think, I always think of this when it comes to the idea of an elder um, 
is uh, Madonna. Because you look at someone like uh, Madonna, and this is, I think, one of the... Because I think the progress can go not just in terms of technology, but just uh, social innovation or whatever. Like, I think there is a lot of stuff happening, whether it's with trad wives, whether it's with MRAs or all these different people where they're rebelling against um, social progress. And I think one of the reasons they're rebelling against social progress is because um, a lot of social progress takes away old things they're comfortable with, but doesn't really think out what to replace them with. So people just feel like I'm stepping off the diving board but I don't know if there's any water in the pool and I'm, and I'd rather just stay on the diving board. So um, you, you get that with like feminism, for example, where you look at someone like Madonna and, you know, under uh, modern capitalistic bourgeois feminist feminism, she um, very much is the epitome of like an alpha woman. She's a businesswoman. She's, um, um, she just defines herself, you know, doesn't, yeah. Yeah, yeah, doesn't care about sexual mores or... Can um, I just say, I, I fucking mm-hmm. love Madonna. Really quickly, I'll just yeah. put that out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think Madonna, I think Madonna's like iconic, but uh, we, one thing that's interesting about Madonna is that she has no blueprint for getting old, you know, because um, you can't just be sexy forever. You can't be that alpha... Uh, lady for forever um under the model that she was coming under which is like you know uh sex pot singer dancer um businesswoman you know so in one way she was progress from the woman that had to be um a housewife that had to be defined by being a mother you know that um was the grandmother in in the yard peeling tomatoes, you know, with those big arms, you know, like, you know, like in those um, old Italian movies and stuff that that type of um, elder, elder woman, you know, who was kind of a babushka almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the babushka, like, but, but what happens is like, what can she be? All she can be is just this overly toned, um, still dressing sexy, still dancing, 50 something year old woman and, and when you see her daughter talk about her her daughter was giving interviews like mom why can't you just be a regular mom like her mom like find uh her daughter Luda was talking about how mortifying um she finds her you know but i don't blame madonna because what else can she um be in a world that kills kills elders like like we don't have elders we just have old people you know what i mean and old people don't yeah. know what to, don't know what to do they don't know what to do with themselves like and in, in the old day, maybe she might have had a husband that, you know, didn't treat her in the most enlightened way or whatever, but she had a role uh, reserved for her. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It makes me think of my conversation with Julie Rack about kind of uh, feminism and, and cultural theory and critical theory. Like, like what are what are the boundaries that are that are allowed to, to people, you know? Like, and in this case, like the boundary that the Madonna is really allowed is to stay sexy forever. And, you know, I'm fine with that. I, 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 she can, she can stay totally sexy, but it's interesting. Like you say that there's literally no blueprint for her to look at and say, okay, well, this is what, this is, this is the, this is a place that older women 
in particular can have that's that's honored and 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 uh, um, integrated into the greater society. Yeah, yeah, maybe that still needs to be negotiated. I think the problem with the trad wives and the MRAs and stuff like that is their solutions is just try to go back to the old way, um, warts and all. And it's like, yeah, they're cultural Luddites. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just because you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater doesn't mean that uh, the only solution is to bring back the baby and the bathwater. Like, you know, like, uh, you know, that if this doesn't work, there's a reason why people want to throw out that bathwater. Then these people's solution is just throw throw their bathwater back in there, too. You know, it's (laughs) well, it's worth it's worth saying, like, and this is maybe a good a good thing to transition to the, our, the last topic on like um, you know like you can't if you if you turn back the clock you'd, you'd probably be surprised how fucked up things could also be in that context like say for example within an oral tradition I'm sure there was all kinds of patriarchy I'm sure there was all kinds of abuse oh, you know sure. people you know um, people monopolizing knowledge and whatnot I mean there's all kinds of problems but I mean I think I think the mature way to look at it is to say okay how can we actually try and find the be- the better parts of both approaches you know. Um, synthesis yeah synthesis and i don't and i think that's actually the more natural process that takes place um but you could i think you can actually accelerate that synthesis if, if you just kind of put some focus and some thought into it you know um but when i look at um you know the january 6th storming of the u.s capitol i wonder like to what extent is that uh, fed by a confusion between um uh, you, you know, a frustration with with modernity and whatnot, and and wanting to go back to something that that is really just at this point really just imagined and, and manufactured on like message boards and whatnot. Like, I'm I'm really starting to freak out. There was this. <laughs> I keep on thinking about this movement within um, feudal China, where there was uh, there was this cult that that came about, and there was this guy who basically was just like, "Look, I'm Jesus." follow me and they and they controlled like vast swaths of china for like decades and decades and i don't i don't think we're getting to a point where internet cults are ever going to be taking over like tons of territory but i mean there's all kinds of examples of of you know whether it's like the the gas uh, attacks in tokyo where there was that case in the 80s of that cult in oregon that like went around a restaurant spraying salmonella on on the salad bar items um like what kind of freaks me out most is 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 that in a lot of ways this was a bunch of like there, there were a bunch of QAnon cultists there that are just like so detached from reality that like you don't even know how to how to even address them you know oh yeah yeah I mean and and, and that's the problem is that we have one side of people who don't want to admit that maybe we did lose something valuable in um the loss of traditionalism, you know, in addition to all the bad stuff that we lost. And you have another side of people who are unwilling to admit that maybe we lost some horrible shit when we move forward, you know, like as in there is some good stuff that happened from the progress. No one wants to have a nuanced um, conversation and negotiate what is it that's worth keeping or maybe we got rid of too soon. And what is it that's worth getting rid of that was that needed that needed to go? Like, you know, there's just people who just want to just plow forward um, everything new, everything that uh, yeah. issues tradition. I mean, you see, it on I, would also, I would add I would add one quick addendum to that. I think people yes. are unwilling sure. to look at the things that are really 
the same thing we had before, but under a different guise. That's a great you know? point too. Yeah, you know? you're right. Like yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of things where it's like, oh wow, like look at look at how amazing, you know, the way we we conduct businesses and the way we structure our companies, for example. It's like, but how how does does that actually rhyme with the things that we used to do that we didn't that we've since supposedly understood to be barbaric, you know? Yeah, I saw this Twitter thread. It was by some female and POC um, YA writers and stuff, and they were talking about how to get rid of the white male um, cultural hegemony that is in like um, books that teens are forced to read. And this woman was doing a thread, and it was like uh, Moby Dick, throw it out. Uh, and someone was, was like, "Oh, it was such a great victory when we got." Um, the Iliad and the Odyssey taken off uh, the reading list for the kids. And they're just bragging about all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is um, just silly. Like, like he's trying to just get rid of every book that's written by a male white guy and just replace it with something by a POC or a woman, regardless of whether or not it's good. Cause no one wants to take the time to actually negotiate and do the work of saying, okay, this text is by, um a white male and it's garbage and it's only there because this guy was white and male and it catered to um you know what a what a child what a ridiculously childish approach to i mean yeah you know like yeah. I, I, i'm so not childish. defending i'm not defending the canon but like you know a document yeah, like yeah. the iliad or let's say like shakespeare for example you can fucking read shakespeare and see seeds and, and roots of all kinds of like countercultural depictions or or like you know the ghosts of 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 the slain and whatnot, you can actually, if you just engage with it and, and interrogate it in a way, like even, even if it's like, say like uh, treating the witness ho as hostile in some way, shape or form, you're gonna get value out of, out of that stuff. And yes, of yeah. course you should be reading everything else too. Like why, why, why are we not capable of, of both, of doing both is what and I And it's so, it's so influential that, uh, because that's the other thing, not everything is about being entertained or affirmed you know every people treat everything it's about being entertained or affirmed and it's like um even therapy is like that now a lot of people think therapy is just supposed to um affirm them or make them feel feel good rather than um challenge them and, and stuff like that so it's like um you don't have to actually like what you read because that was nothing they're saying like oh these these readers don't see themselves in the books and they're not fun and it's like uh yeah but if something is super influential and has uh sparked like a hundred tropes then it's worth knowing about just for historical significance but the idea that i'm just gonna throw out everything that's white and male is just a perpetuation of the idea that i'm gonna keep out everything that's not white and male like you know as far as um it doesn't really change anything as far as um critical thought it just creates a new um in crowd or whatever it's, it's it was amazingly silly how they were just bragging about getting uh, white men taken off but you know uh some of the um there was a document that it was called hashtag disrupt text and all the documents were just um, books written by their friends who do YA. Uh, and some of them were really like <laughs> mediocre looking. It was so stupid. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I want to I want to recognize the fact that that righteous rage is there's a lot of legitimacy there. And I think I think I can definitely understand 
that impulse and certainly the rush of, of you know, um, kind of doing a hit job on, on these really powerful um, kind of uh, cultural items and whatnot. But um, I mean, we just, it's, it's just, you just need to learn to think critically and, and even just like, if you're interested, if you're interested in, let's say, for example, like dismantling white supremacy, um, you know, and I think this has come up on Champagne Sharks before. It's like you're going to need to convince white people because they have the most fucking power. So, like, yeah. don't don't exclude them from the project of dismantling white supremacy by telling them that all white people are trash and they need to get out of the way because, you know, they're driving the bus. And if they get out of the way, the, the bus is just going to fly off the cliff probably before someone else is going to take the wheel ultimately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know. I mean, um, I might be. I, I, I'm white. I'll say so. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm being self-serving a little bit. But I mean, I mean, I think unfortunately is the realism in the situation. But I think what happens is people think you're making a commentary on um, competence or ability or potential, or whatever. So they think when you're saying that, you're saying, oh, so you're saying that uh, women and POC can't run the show. But you know, that's not what. Uh, at least it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that um, we just don't have the numbers and they have the head start. That's that's just basically what what it is. And it's like, but I think a lot of people um, don't really want a pragmatic solution. I think what a lot of people want is to do a type of extortion. Like, for example, those people who are doing all those um uh, substituting of the white cannon with their stuff. I mean, what really are they changing at the end of the day? Because these people, they're not doing anything particularly political. They're just trying to get guilty white people to um, buy their books and library programs and, and in schools and get a nice check at the end of the day. Too many of these things are public domain. They're not getting a chance to, uh, nobody's making money off them. The corporations are fine with it because they're like, hey, instead of these public domain books, you know, that we can't make money off of being on reading list, these POC and women are getting a lot of our, you know, new books into these schools. So you get a lot of this corporate capitalistic wokeness, you know, that they're subsidizing or promoting because not because they care about uh, POC or women, but because, hey, this is a good pretense to get more new books into um, the school. So, so it's like, I, I think there's a lot of self-serving stuff. I mean, you're saying maybe it's self-serving of um, me as a white person to think this, but I think a lot of these people who are um, doing their wokeness in this childish way are doing something very self-serving um, themselves, you know? And I think, yeah everyone who's doing something self-serving needs to be kind of called out and, and evaluated. And that's the only way we can get to a world where um, no one is being self-serving, you know? Yeah. Or, or at least where self-servingness is not, is not the, the kind of the pillar of this, of, that we're building our whole society upon. I mean, all this ties into, you know, people being <laughs> alienated and atomized board. and, yeah, or, that, that would be nice too, sure. Yeah, if all of us are self-serving, but we all are open we, we, about how we're self-serving. Yeah. We, can we, only, we only post it in the shameless plug Slack channel and keep it there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, I have to go soon, but if you... Of course, um, of course. Uh, if you want to wrap up or any final points or anything, I can stay for, for sure. another, another couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to talk again, Trevor. I knew I would really enjoy it, and uh, I'm sure the Likewise. audience is really going to enjoy it as well. If, by, if anyone who listens to Night Rule is not listening to Champagne Sharks, give your head a shake and listen to it right away. It is uh, one of the best podcasts around, no question in my mind. Um, we also do have a, uh, a Patreon now for Night Rule. If you go to patreon.com slash Night Rule, you can listen to some mixtapes I've been making, and we have uh, two premium episodes up there. Uh, one with Professor Julie Rack on critical theory and another with Ben Burgess, where we go in depth on uh, a lot of our favorite Twilight Zone episodes, which was really fun. Um, anything else you want to share with the uh, the kids before you go, T? Uh, no, just go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks, but also check out our YouTube, youtube.com forward slash champagne sharks. Uh, we're doing uh daily live streams there for 2021 uh we did a challenge whether it's like five minutes or five hours just do a live stream every day so um that's been that's been a lot of fun we talk about a lot of topical stuff there so in addition to the podcast there's there's that so definitely check out the youtube and definitely check him out on Twitter at Ricky Rawls. Um, definitely a fun account to uh, to follow. Um, all right, dude. Well, I'll shoot you a message when this is up. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it was, uh, oh, it was yeah. a lot of fun getting to converse again. And uh, yeah, definitely. And let me know how the uh, how the oat milk recipes work out and uh, and whatnot. And I'll be uh, I'll be looking forward to more content on uh, on Champagne Sharks too. Yeah, great, great. And now uh, we'll have you on in a couple of weeks to to um, um, do a, do a show. So oh, I'd um, love that. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. I'll try awesome. and uh, I'll try and abate all of my anxieties and, and self loathing <laughs> in the meantime to get ready for that. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs>